0: The idea of condemning somebody for a thought, for a, you know, egoistic display is to declare that, wait, not only did you run afoul of the authority structure, but now we're going to use this to remind you that you were wrong then, wrong now, if you try to defend yourself. And the reason for that is... Fill in the blank of a modern notion of sin, you know, and it has nothing to do with what you did. What you did is just an example of the bone deep, you know, spirit level quality that you didn't choose. You were just born with. You must be some kind of
1: therapist.
2: I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Welcome back to You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. My guest today is some kind of therapist. His name is David Teachout. He is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Washington and a licensed professional counselor in the state of South Dakota, so he can actually work virtually uh, in his private practice with people in both states. Um, He has self-published a book called Journey of a Spiritual Atheist that's available on Amazon, and he has a podcast called Humanity's Values. Uh, One of David's areas of interest is religious abuse and religious trauma, and I'm excited to interview him about that today. So David, welcome. Welcome.
0: Hey, thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for having me.
2: Can you give our listeners a little insight into your background?
0: Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Michigan. And, uh, you know, for those who were uh, born in Michigan, yeah, represent Sparrow Hospital. Um, but uh, that joke will totally work with most people who were born there. Um, but uh, so grew up there. I went to college in uh, Grace Bible College. I believe it's now referred to as Grace Christian University. Um, I was going to be a pastor. And about midway through, long story, truly short, not just saying that, um, just basically deconverted and uh, went down a different path, finished my program, came out to Washington and ended up uh, absolutely loving the Pacific Northwest and lived out there for about 17 years. I uh, met my wife, and she and I recently just moved to South Dakota about a year ago and bought a house, and I swore I would never move. I uh, live again east of the Rockies, and here I am in one of the you know big plain states and loving it. Uh, the Badlands are amazing. Um, so during this whole process uh, and journey, I've gotten a master's in mental health counseling, and then I also got another master's in forensic psychology. Uh, so work with a lot of clients as well in the past through, um, you know, uh, domestic violence, criminal issues, uh, helping navigate, you know, how do you approach being in a legal system? Because uh, most people, for a good reason, um, don't really have much of a, you know, insight into that and the different mentality it takes to deal with uh, lawyer speak and that kind of thing. Um and so, yeah, I mean, along the ways, uh, you know, religious trauma syndrome, which we'll get into, you know, in a bit, uh, kind of came up as I got more involved in uh, recovering from religion uh, and uh, Religious Freedom Foundation and uh, started doing presentations for them and really saw the need and recognized that a lot of the clients were dealing with a lot of ideological stuff that had to do with identity and how do I look at myself when everything I hold dear is shifted sometimes fundamentally. And so really started uh, going after that kind of cohort for a while and probably makes up about half my clientele right now. And Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Just incredible work. People are really trying to figure out how they, how they work within the world now that they're living a life that is what they would have considered at some point anathema.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that real breakdown in the beliefs that form the foundation of your existence. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that you've worked both with people who were maybe part of mainstream religions, but faced some let's say, religiously inspired abuse in their home environments to people who experienced abuses within their churches or places of worship. Um, have you also worked with people who were in cults that were maybe
0: more obscure? Yes. Um, you know, most of the clients that I, you know, I've worked with uh, fall into the very broad category of Christianity Um but uh, and, and I say broad because I don't distinguish uh, mainstream you know religions from cults uh, too much, other than as a kind of academic category, uh, because the experience of going through each of these and um, tend to focus on the degree of authoritarianism that is involved, and for me, that's just a matter of spectrum. Like cults are really fun there's they're not fundamentally different than mainstream. They're just on one end of the spectrum. And you can go all the way to the opposite and still be even be uh if you can call it mainstream, but you know, groups like um uh, uh you know uh science of mind uh comes you know is one they refer to themselves as Christian. Um, they have lovely people. I've actually been involved uh, in a couple of their, we still refer to them as churches and it's great. Um, but you know, the, but by any traditional standard, they're not at all. <laughs> um, and so you really, you find, you, you start really figuring out that how, a, you know, how a person, uh, exhibits these things really has less to do with the, what they're labeling as the religion itself. And more, to use a psych term or therapy term, the secondary gain, like, are they doing it in order to try to control something? Are they doing it because they have a deep-seated need for authority uh, in, in varying degrees of health to unhealthy uh, or something else? And so when people come and find me, what generally ends up happening is, again, a spectrum from people who are... This, I was, you know, abused to some degree, often emotional uh, by a leader in the church and whatever one they, came, they are coming from. Um, and they're not necessarily even leaving. You know, my, my goal is not to, you know, raise some kind of atheist flag and let's, you know, march through the streets. It's is what you believe, how you frame yourself within this world we all kind of find ourselves in. Conducive to living a life that makes sense to you and mm. is ethical and uh, allows for healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I don't have to agree <laughs> with every last piece. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, my specific beliefs about any number of things don't often even come up. They don't have to because my basis is the shared humanity that we have. And without getting into a bunch of, like, doctrinal, you know, debates, which I never do, uh, certainly not anymore, um, you know, it's you're left with, well, how do we just figure things out and live our lives? And there's there's a lot more overlap there. Um, So, but, but, yeah, so they'll fall on that or they'll go on the other end of the spectrum, which is more like I have completely left this and I'm lost. Like the bedrock foundation, you know, to be redundant, um, is, has been shattered. It's, I don't get any more of the idea of how do I view myself? Mm-hmm. How do I view ethics? How do I view my spouse in particular? Mm-hmm. You know, if the, if your other member of your relationship is, is, uh, has not gone the same route, how do you navigate this? You know, is am I allowed? Am I, am I able to just do anything? I mean, I'm told, I was told all along that if I gave this up, I'd turn into a you know raging psychopath, but I don't feel any need to do that. So, what's up? <laughs> how does this work?
1: Mm-hmm. And so,
0: we just work through, yeah, well, let's rebuild how it is to view yourself and ethics and relationships, and frankly, recognizing that a lot of what you are already doing is good. Like, really, (laughs) you you weren't all really messed up. Most of the stuff we do is perfectly fine. And it's just got this, um, what often is taught is that what we have decided is not ours to own. It's the religious structure or, or form of the deity that uh, was at the heart of whatever ideology was being espoused. Um, and so instead, it's recognizing, that, you know, you were making the decisions anyway, and you don't need the, the authority structure to tell you uh, what you were going to do anyway. I mean, it's really, it's one of those things where one of the greatest freedoms is to recognize that most of the decisions we make, we'd have made regardless. And getting that, that light bulb moment is just amazing to, to witness.
2: Mm. Helping people trust themselves again, trust mm-hmm. their own decision-making. So yeah. kind of starting at the bird's eye view here, why do you think we are a religious species? What drives us to seek Religions in the first place, and what do they do for us?
0: I think fundamentally, what we are pattern-seeking creatures. I mean, it's we see shapes in clouds, we faces in toast. Um, you know, if you've got the if you've got a house that's older than twenty years, you probably have the speckled ceiling. And if you gaze upon it, like sometimes you can see faces and animals, and like we like putting things together into known quantities based on previous experience, and one of those known quali- quantities is relationship. At a fundamental, like just just basic level, before you get into labels of what form relationship takes, we are just at base relationship cre- relational creatures, and so. Combine the relationship with pattern-seeking, and what ends up coming up? Well, you dash in a heaping dose of ignorance, of which we all have (laughs) in varying degrees on varying topics, and what are you going to do? Well, you're going to create some way of figuring out how the world works, because we need it to structure our behavior of how to navigate our resource management and moving forward day by day and future planning. And you bring enough people together who happen to agree and create a structure out of it, well, there you are. It's either if it's a structure that's based on a, uh, some form of deity or uh, extra physical or supernatural entity, well, now you've got a religion. If it's a structure based on some kind of um, social ideology, well, now you've got a political. I mean, really, we, the people, <laughs> is fundamentally no different than, in the beginning, God breathed. It's, it's the same thing um, at, at the base level of we're trying to figure out how the world works. And if we go down this path, this is what this means for me. And if we go down this path, this is what this means to me. Because it's going to help me direct my attention to what behavior works within the way that i view the world and so you create a couple billion of us and i mean (laughs) shoot you can ask a dozen people um you know what they consider to be family values and you're going to get a dozen different examples of behavior and what that means um you know if you ask a dozen people who are so-called eyewitnesses at a crime you're going to get a dozen different variations on who the person looked like, what happened, and so on. It's really not a stretch that we're, you writ that large into groups. And now you've got a whole bunch of things, you know, systems set up to make sense of things and help you feel connected to one another. So.
2: Very interesting take. I love how you put that together so clearly. It's the pattern seeking. Drive and the relationship seeking drive. I also heard—I can't remember where I heard this—but this this kind of evolutionary lens that mm-hmm. I forget what what's that number called—the number of people in a tribe not exceeding one hundred and fifty. There's a name for it. I'm forgetting <coughs> Dunbar. Sorry. Dunbar? No. Maybe I'm getting. Anyway, Sounds
1: familiar. Yeah.
2: The um. You know, the idea that we are, we evolved to live in bands and tribes of, you know, 50 to 150 people. And like you say, relationships are foundational. And when you belong to a tribe, it's really important to maintain good relationships in that tribe. And if you Mm -hmm. do something that violates the moral codes of that tribe, then sooner or later, everyone's bound to find out and you're not going to like the consequences of that. So there's, um, there's a way that groups, when they're small enough, are kind of self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to a large enough group, when you start having civilizations and you're encountering strangers as part of civil life, those relationships don't hold you together in, in the same way. And so I, I heard this kind of evolutionary lens that we needed some kind of God to make the tribe feel smaller so that it does feel like even though the city feels anonymous, it feels like there's a God that's always watching you. And that God is always watching everyone else and knows what you're thinking and knows what you're doing. And so you better be good. And I feel like I'm singing this Santa Claus song right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he
0: knows but if you've it, been good or bad.
2: Yeah. But that we we need something like that to keep us in check. And I think that's one of the major. Conflicts between religious people and atheists is: Do we need to believe in a higher power in order to keep ourselves morally in check? And a lot of atheists would say no, but I could see how, from an evolutionary lens, it makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've heard that. And uh, well done on, on, on putting that down um, in, into a into a nutshell, because. I've heard it said before in various ways, and you know another version is I think uh, like Dawkins's version of spandrel. It's this um, hijacking, not his word, but a kind of superimposition of an idea onto a baseline um, cognitive structure. So it's this idea of like again that pattern seeking, and then what happens? Well, we slap a whole bunch of things on top of that, and it kind of comes along for the ride, and. It's certainly interesting. I'm, I'm not even certain that I disagree, really. Um, I tend to avoid evolutionary explanations beyond um, basic structures. You know, saying this particular behavior uh, developed, uh, I tend to get away from that because um, all it takes is a different finding to then jettison the whole thing. <laughs> so it's I'm like, eh. Um, But there is something to be said about, uh, you know, how we talk with one another. So you have those uh, dual principles, uh, pattern-seeking and relationship-seeking. And if we really ponder for a moment, nobody really exists to us except as projections of our own conscious experience. Like, we never get to really know the real you or other person. It's always approximations. It's always is my idea given the limitations of sensory data and attention, um, which is always being split. And um, in the the capacity for understanding, just because somebody else uses the same words does not mean they are meaning it and all of the variations uh, that we do thankfully there's enough overlap that 90 percent of the time we just move along as if um, but really we're living as if life so we're living as if you do actually understand me we're living as if you do get me and, and under and see me um and and that works it's okay it's but it's it's so it's not a big stretch to go well huh if this person largely exists in my head, then somebody who isn't really alive exists in my head. And maybe I can still talk with them and hear them. And then it's not too big of a stretch to then go from that to, well, if that exists, then there's, and I don't have to have a physiological, you know, uh, relationship in that in kind of a gross biological way, then. Um. Then why not something bigger? And we map then that onto social structures. I mean, odds are, I'd be. I mean, there's no way of knowing this. Probably cause not enough information has pe- been passed down. But it's pure speculation. I'd be curious if smaller tribes of less than fifty have a robust uh, religious uh, structure. They may not need it because it's going to grow with the complexity of social relationships. And then we bring that idea of um, things existing just to my own conscious experience. And that will then grow as well uh, with, you know, the size of the structure that keeps the social cohesion. And so, like I said, I mean, it's a similarity of, well, if I can say, um, uh, you know, have to admit or to um, acknowledge my ancestors, then how big of a deal is it then to acknowledge that there must be a similar level of authority that is at the time of chieftain and so on and so forth or whatever title, you know, that tribe may have had. And so it's a, we're, we're constantly mapping our conscious experience onto lived experience and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't at all. Sometimes they work for a very short time and other times they, you know, work for a long time. You know, you have the Catholic church, a couple, you know, a few thousand years, like here we are. So. Yeah. That's an
2: interesting way of laying it out. I like how you drew the connections between what I, I'm going to use a little psychology jargon, what what's called the internalized self object, right? So mm-hmm. the, <clears throat> the mental image of my partner that lives in my head from all of the experiences that we've had together and the attachment that I've formed. Right. And so as a child, you're, you have your internalized self object of your parent and, and your siblings. And, and we have these versions of our loved ones and as well as people who've hurt us that live in our minds and they could Mm -hmm. range from accurate to inaccurate and, Um, from positive to negative experiences and that that can then be extrapolated to, you know, well, if you can have a relationship with someone in your mind and heart when that person's not around, then you can also have them have that relationship when they're deceased. Then you can Mm -hmm. also have that as sort of an imaginary friend. And for many people, that's what Jesus is or Buddha is, or, you know, whoever their God or angel that they pray to is And I think that that can be really helpful. In fact, I, mm-hmm. I recommend that people who don't have good relationships find some kind of imaginary friend or internalized self-object to consult. And if they're atheist, mm-hmm. it could be as simple as, you know, a character on a TV show that you really like, right? Like, if yep. you know, you if you didn't have a father, but there's a sitcom you like where the dad is really loving and supportive, like having a relationship in your head with what would he say? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that these practices of kind of mentalizing and forming a mental image of someone or something that can give you comfort and wise counsel and strength can be hugely beneficial. And I see that in people who have a positive relationship with their religion, where it really works for them, and they've made it their own, and it it's a valuable part of their daily life. That that's a component, right? It's that sense of their inner relationship with their deity or angel of choice or their ancestors that um, just adds a lot of meaning and strength to their lives. But then on the mm-hmm. opposite end of the extreme, and this is probably more we're going to talk about because we're going to talk about religious abuse today. You know, you have the the internalized image of the the terrifying. God, right? The the all-knowing, all-powerful God who knows your every thought and is there to scrutinize them for purity and if you so much as think a sinful thought then you're you know, headed to damnation for all eternity. So these things that live in our minds can so powerfully influence our thoughts, moods, and behaviors and that's really where I hear that you come in and practically as a therapist you're saying how a person's religion is working for them is your area of of interest. Is it helping them have a life that's happy and healthy and meaningful and robust? And and yep. uh, are their beliefs congruent with um, goals that are supportive of their their well being?
0: Mm-hmm. And really, and only getting into the nuts and bolts of that when the you know I may be able to identify. This makes no sense. <laughs> Like, if you're really going to draw this, what you just said, and run with it, this is going to – this just doesn't follow. But that's not my role. Like, I'm not here to make carbon copies of – certainly not how I view the world. Heck, I don't agree with myself sometimes. Um, I mean, it's just, like, it's about identifying, okay, what is the person, what is the client or patient, you know, showing up with to address. And then if they're willing to acknowledge that the way they're viewing things is regardless of its source uh, contributing to that problem, okay, we can have that conversation. And maybe find out that it's not about jettisoning the whole thing. It's about recognizing that this is your journey and you're kind of making it up as you go along and that means this too. So you're not going to run afoul of the authority you thought if you shift this because at the end of the day, is it still going to be something good to do? And the whole, I mean, one of the fundamental you know, uh, uh, philosophical points behind, you know, the debate around uh, fill in the blank God existence is, um, I was whenever anybody asked me if I believe, I was like, "Well, which one? Like, define it for me, and then we can go. Like, we can have this conversation. I'm not going to assume." Um, but it's like, you know, recognizing that you're filling this in with that need. I love the internal self object uh, idea that you're that you're t- talking about. Um, you're the one filling this in. So, how do you want to do it, and how is it helping you to move forward? And when you take ownership of that, when you recognize that even if, and coming back full circle, because I got off a little bit of tangent there, um, about, you know, the the ethical question concerning, you know, deity's existence, you're going, well, we need a final arbiter of what is good. Well, yeah, but ultimately, we're still the one who decided this is or that is that arbiter. So, it's still about us. <laughs> like we can't get rid of this. Like we're, we we cannot step outside of it. We cannot remove ourselves from the equation. And, uh, and the, and this is where we get into the harm is that the more we try to remove the humanity, that's when we get into trouble. That's when we get into ideas that are um, toxic to, uh, being able to live that pattern seeking, relational seeking life. And that's in, in recognizing that you can own this journey. You don't have to give it up the way that you may have been taught uh, is amazing. Like you, you just, and it often doesn't lead to a whole lot of changes in behavior. It, it leads to a greater awareness and self responsibility for it. You know, it's no longer I'm doing it because the, of, of this. I'm doing it because I want to and I can see where this is helpful. And this is an expression of what matters to me. And, oh, OK, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's just really a lot of fun to see. Um, and some people take, you know, short time. Other people take a while to get there. And then but once you're there, it's just the uh, sky's the limit where you want to go.
2: If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So, go to eightsleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. So, I'm curious how you would define some of the Main characteristics of religious abuse and religious trauma? Mm-hmm. Probably I'm imagining there's a connection right between each element of religious abuse and the nature of the trauma that forms from it. What are some common mm-hmm. themes?
0: So I may, may mention a little bit before, but the central theme is going to be a uh, the degree of authoritarianism that is bound within the structure, um, often supported by uh, some variation of religious doctrine. Um, and I'm not going to get into <laughs> a debate around like, oh, this isn't true. Christianity this is not true. This I really don't care. It's some variation of it. And, um, you know, and, and you can make of it what you will. Uh, so. It's the degree of authoritarianism where basically the idea is to um, deny one of three major aspects of what it means to be human. And one is one's responsibility. This is where the authoritarianism comes in. It's basically removing it from you. It's saying, um, to use, frankly, what used to be my favorite verse, um, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, it's Philippians 4.13, I believe. But it, you know it's um, don't quote me on that. Been a while since really, but you know it's that idea of I don't matter, authority matters, whatever that may be, and it could be deity. Well, let's face it; it always boils down to a leader in the group, and the degree to which that authority is abusive is excuse me, where we get into notions of what a cult is. You know, a run of the mill minister, pastor, priest um, is not likely to ask you to forsake your family, uh, likely <laughs> uh, forsake your family, give up all your possessions, go off into a commune and, you know, give everything over to this leader. Um, and at least not in practice, you know, that may be the ideal. You know, we come back to, you know, you know, Jesus' thing about, you know, forsaking all uh, except for me kind of thing. And but, it, it's a, but in practice, generally speaking, most structures aren't asking you to do that. It's more of the ideal if we could get there. So we have there the authority of removing responsibility of the sense of self. Then we have one sense of um, ethical privacy. And by that, I mean this notion of how I determine what is good and wrong, what is, you know, bad and right, is something that occurs within me. And it's something that I reflect on and can wrestle with and so on. You remove that. So I think you may have mentioned like, well, when a deity is perfect uh, appraisal of all your thoughts, you know, it's. You know, it's the C, it's the principle behind, um, if you have even thought of adultery, you have committed it. Whoa, that makes zero sense in anybody's actual lived experience. Like, it makes, it it is a complete denial of how we come to ethical decision making. It's, you know, because we will run a hundred scenarios in our head to varying degrees of conscious awareness. and before, you know, figuring out this is the behavior I'm going to to engage with. And we know at a just bone deep level that our thoughts are not the same as externalized behavior. They can't be. So, and in fact, our entire judicial system is largely based on that. Because we know if we were to start thought policing everybody we'd all end up in jail and talk about a denial of selfhood. Like just, yeah, awful. We should come back to that
2: because I'm, that is happening, right? I love that you brought it up. Yeah. Ethical privacy. There's a lot of
0: overlap. I I
2: mean, let's just, let's just pause there for a moment. I know you haven't finished answering the question, but I'm really glad that you brought this up because you, you talked about the degree of authoritarianism having a lot to do with how abusive a religion uh, or a leader has the potential to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and then ethical privacy. And I see this real connection with fear of one's own thoughts. And that's Mm -hmm. really contradictory to what we do as therapists, right? A lot of what we do as therapists is help people not be afraid of their own thoughts, both not be afraid of introspection of, you know, being present with challenging emotions or, looking at something that's maybe hard to look at within themselves, but also understanding that a thought is just a thought. Uh, so intrusive thoughts, for instance, it's it's not uncommon for someone to occasionally have a thought that is really alarming, right? So you mentioned a mm-hmm. thought of adultery. I mean, that's common. It's connected to human sexuality. Um, you know, a thought of, you know, the potential of harm to oneself or someone else uh, that's completely separate from any intention or desire to harm, right? Mm-hmm. And if if this is new or the person is young or naive or um, hasn't had the right type of support, it, it can induce almost a sense of panic. Like I just thought that thought, right? And I, I think our job as therapists is sometimes to kind of, you know, treat the thought like the monster under the bed, you know, like it's just Mm -hmm. a thought that thought doesn't have any power over you. That thought doesn't have to reflect who you are. You know, you have a thousand thoughts a day and this one just happened to really stand out to you because there's a part of your brain that's looking out for anything that stands out. And and this one was Mm -hmm. glaringly disturbing, but, um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to act on it. It doesn't mean you have to be left feeling the way that this thought leaves you temporarily feeling. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what else is no one else can read your thoughts, right? There's the, um, the fallacy of transparency. We mm-hmm. all think that um, people know more than they really do about what we're thinking. Usually what comes across is our general mood through our body language and demeanor, our energy level mm-hmm. perhaps. But that's something we get wrong all the time. I mean, there's the fundamental attribution error, right? Like, uh, you know, someone, I I hate this as a woman, if I don't wear makeup, what's wrong? Are you tired? Did I make you mad? What are you sad about? Are you okay? You know, like, it's like, no, I'm just not wearing makeup. Thank you very much for reinforcing beauty standards. Like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, but uh, I mean, it's very common to... Either comment on someone's appearance, or to internally think that that person seems upset. And really, the reality is something going on physically. They're tired. They have a stomach ache or a headache. It's not personal, right? So generally, we kind of read each other's moods and demeanors, but we can't read each other's each and every thought. And yeah. and I, I think that there's a lot of potential for harm in any kind of religious abuse or emotional abuse that leaves a person feeling for lack of a better word, paranoid that, um, that their thoughts themselves have the potential to be harmful. And I am really glad you brought this up because I see this going on in the culture at large with what we could call cancel culture or wokeness. And I do think that it's important to have conversations about that because there's this kind Mm -hmm. of obsession with mental purity and this real kind of fear and catastrophizing over having any thoughts at all that don't adhere to a very strict narrative. So as someone who specializes in religious abuse, you've seen people scarred by this. What are some of the effects and what do you want to say about that?
0: Well, one of the, one of the effects is, and I pure conjecture, but I wonder if at times the, um, the idea of original sin, that there, that there is something intrinsically wrong with who you are, with who we are as a species. And I wonder if that was a development as a consequence of an increasingly authoritative structure that um, allow that only allows for a select amount or a select um, uh, 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 spectrum or cone of behavior that because our brains don't care (laughs) You know, one of the one of the base things to really get that clients you know have a hard time uh, uh, getting to sometimes, and don't really cover this with everybody, but is that our brains don't care about truth, capital T. They they only care about what allows us to move forward in survival, and we will get used to some truly awful environments if we need to, and it will become a norm. And we will just be like, well, here it is. This is this is reality. Uh, okay, but the more restricted we get, the more we're more the in, innate imaginative uh, uh, tendency that we all have to make new thoughts. You know, it's why you know we were able to um, circle the globe, <laughs> to even contemplate a globe. To it's why we have built skyscrapers and looked at the birds and said, we can do that and made a plane. You know, it's why, um, you know, know, entrepreneurship works, because we take an idea and run with it in a slightly different way. And suddenly people are like, Oh, my gosh, yes, I love what you're what you're selling. And you're like, Well, it's not that we there was a market that we found. It's in many ways, a, a reciprocity of market creation, through this mutual understanding that as we build and expand our experiences, other people will gravitate to that and go, oh, right, <laughs> you too are human. And this is yet another way of seeing yet another slice of reality. And so the more authoritative a thing, you know, a structure gets, the more things that are, te- that are deemed aberrant or wrong or sinful or, you know, or hate speech, you know, all of a sudden, then you need a, if you're not willing to question the authority, you need a doctrine to explain why this keeps coming up and why I can't control it. And why is it just bubbling up without like, I didn't choose to have those thoughts. Oh, well, Sim. like now we have this. Oh, yes. Oh, now that makes sense. It's not you. It's you. You know, it's, it's not the you you want to be. It's the you you are, and by that, you now need to acquiesce even further to the authority in order to make sure, and then you have the consequence of, well, now, you know, the the only way to actually get better is to fundamentally change one's identity through eventual uh, actual death or a smaller form of it by acquiescing to this authoritarian structure to some degree, and you absolutely see that uh, these days where it's like, I mean, really, when it comes to I mean, we met uh, off of Twitter. Twitter is, and I say this with the almost of affection, the cesspool of, of all of our thoughts. And, you know, it's an amazing uh, thing, uh, you know, a way of social bonding. But at the same time, in many ways, it really is almost like stream of consciousness. Like what you people are putting out there are things that otherwise uh, we wouldn't in other circumstances. But the cloud idea, this ephemeral, non-structured space allows us to imaginatively construct all these new things and just throw it out there. And sometimes, yeah, you're going to get some awful things. And at times, you're going to get stuff that didn't appear awful on one time. Ta- one time, in months down the road, given the inevitable level of ignorance that we all have, it might be deemed wrong. You know, later on in the future, and the idea of condemning somebody for a thought, for a you know, egoistic, uh, you know, like eh, just you know, uh, display. Is to declare that, wait, not only did you run afoul of the authority structure, but now we're going to use this to remind you that you were wrong then, wrong now, if you try to defend yourself. And the reason for that is fill in the blank of a modern notion of sin. and, And it has nothing to do with what you did. What you did is just an example of the bone-deep, mm. you know spirit level mm-hmm. quality that you didn't choose. you were just born with you know, due to some quirk of genetics and the fact that some immutable quality uh, mm-hmm. that you have. And there you have it. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you can probably fill in the blanks there uh, where, where that goes.
2: A couple so. of important points you brought up there. One main point I heard you expressing is that the fear of our own thoughts and obsession with mental purity and thought policing of one another cuts off innovation. Mm-hmm. It it destroys our ability to be creative because we're we're too busy being paranoid of our own thoughts, right? There's a yogi teabag quote: A relaxed mind is a creative mind, right? And it makes me think mm-hmm. of um the learning versus performance zone, which I know I've mentioned on a previous episode somewhere, the idea that we need to be able to play in the sandbox. We need to be able to have a low-stakes zone where we're not under a microscope, nothing terrible is going to happen if we make a mistake, just to play around and explore in order to discover what works and to get good at what works before we are ready to be in a higher stakes performance situation. It also reminds me of something Jordan Peterson said that I came across. I can't remember his exact words, but it was in order to be able to think we have to risk offending people. Mm -hmm. So I, the impact on society, right? What is the impact on society when there's a group social dynamic? And a popular way of thinking that cuts off innovation. There's there's a tremendous amount of human potential that's cut off there, including the potential to solve problems. I think curing cancer, right? Cleaning up the oceans. These are all things where we need innovation and creativity. And we can't have that if we're afraid of our own minds.
0: Um Right. Well, I so I love that point. And because you know, and I don't and I don't even need Really, we don't even need to go that big. I mean, if if we just pause for a moment to reflect on the minutiae of little relational connections that we make, whether it be you know just the the person who dropped the mail off to the the variations of people that we run that we run by on um, walking the street um, that. Uh, You know, even, you know, characters that we watch on TV, you know, jokes that we hear, you know, all of these just little things, the ripple effects of what they have for each one of us that then continue to ripple and continue to ripple and what collectively we might be able to um, allow for and grow. That we don't even need to cure cancer, although that's certainly a possibility. If, if we're if we're really just you know lot you know allowing our, our minds to go, but it's just simply the quality of not living in as stressful life as we're currently living.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, what would it be like to, to you know? And this isn't carte blanche to be an asshole. Like it, it's it, this is a recognition that you know often if we're truly are allowed. And I see this with religious uh, clients who are coming out of it or struggling all the time. They're truly allowed, truly feel the ownership of being able to share their thoughts and where they're not going to be condemned for having wrong think. But by and large, most of us don't go down really dark paths. Most of us don't. And by most, I do mean like 99.9% like we just don't go there. And what often is happening is because we're so contained that the 0.1% of that you know, of thoughts that we all tend to happen and end up having an outsized influence because they're drawing so much attention and, we're, and then and then we're stuck there going, well, now I guess my thoughts really matter. And not only that, but that 0.1% of those awful ones really, really matter. And therefore, this is now how I define myself. How utterly grotesque. That's how dehumanizing to, to go down that path. And which is, again, you know, I think, you know, talked before about the authoritarian structures. There's religious versions and there's, there's socio-religious versions. And we're right smack dab in the middle of a sociopolitical version of a religion. And um, and it's really, I I hope we're still around 50 years or so from now. And that generation looks back and goes, wow, that was really dumb. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And let's Mm -hmm. not go there again. Mm
1: -hmm. You know,
0: let's, let's have this be our equivalent of, the Hundred Year War. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't take you know go hundred years, but you know the Hundred Year War. We turn around and go. You know what? Let's make let's make this just as another piece of society that we move on, and it doesn't really have to play that big of a role anymore. Kind of like most of what religion does in Europe. Like it just it's there, but it's just not the defining piece for most people. And if we can get to that point where what you look like and the, and, and even the uh, single thoughts that happen to, you know, pass your lips are not the sole means of defining the whole of who you are. That will be an absolutely beautiful place <laughs> to be in. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Earlier, you were talking about the idea of original sin and that something is just fundamentally corrupt about you or evil, right? And we see that showing up in various iterations outside of Christianity too. And when it comes to the kind of sociopolitical religiosity that we're seeing now, you know, this kind of carte blanche writing off of someone, not for the details of the idea that they've shared, but for some kind of moral impurity. It's like there's that connection to original sin as well. And I think John McWhorter talks about this um, when he talks about wokeness as um, being religious. And so this, you know, it's it's not about the quality of your idea because if there's anything about you that can be deemed to uh, have original sin, then nothing about you should be taken seriously by anyone because you're just fundamentally mm-hmm. corrupt, right? And so, Um, I think this is, this is a real kind of place where society's progress is getting jammed up because there's a lot of people who could be having much more productive dialogues, but where this, Mm -hmm. this obsession with moral purity is kind of stopping the dialogue because all you have to do is say one thing for a button to get pushed, right? Mm That the, the bigot button where, where someone who has this kind of religiosity about their worldview um, decides that you've just said something that indicates that you are fundamentally corrupt Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because there's no other explanation. There's no freedom of thought here. There's no other explanation for why you could have said something that contradicts their worldview. And then you become impure and contaminated. And there's this, we got to sanitize the space and and get you out of here and, you know, shrink wrap you. Mm -hmm. Um. I was also thinking as you were talking, you were talking about this moral scrutiny. Do you think that the obsession with moral purity down to the littlest thought or gesture distracts us, ironically, from recognizing what's truly egregious? Because it seems like the more um, obsessive and ritualistic a religious um, group or cult is, the more heinous activities are occurring at the highest levels. you know that's where you have the child abuse and and um, I'll just share uh, I've briefly mentioned in a couple of places that I've been involved in cults in a, a long long ago at this point. And I've been kind of refreshing my memory, learning about cults recently. I've, I've been reading um, Freedom of Mind by Stephen Hassan. Or mm-hmm. Hassan, um, yeah. And I've been watching uh, "Keep Sweet." It's a new, newish, I think, documentary on this uh, fundamentalist Mormon cult a few decades ago. And okay. you know, the it's like the more cultish a group is, the more it has these little rituals and rules that determine how you're supposed to go about everything. So, you know, for instance, um, in the Hare Krishnas. You're supposed to wake up at 4.30 in the morning and, you know, do all of these prayers before you can even eat, right? Mm-hmm. And and you have to follow all these rules, right? So no mind-altering substances of any kind, including caffeine, right? No meat, no um, sex, I think, no masturbation, no gambling, which gambling is easy for most of us to avoid. I think it's the easiest of all those. Um and and there are all these rituals right there's there's a prayer for everything there's lots of chanting there's um you know which hand you use you know some of this is actually derived from legit hinduism but mm-hmm. some of it some elements of an actual uh religious practice that's organic to certain parts of india where it's kind of part of their functional society you know got turned into uh a cult right mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I want to respect the fact that, for instance, in India, you know, you going back, you wiped your butt with your left hand before they had proper sanitation measures, and that's why you don't touch food with your left hand, right? It's like some mm-hmm. of these things make it's sense. Just thinking that. Okay, you're thinking of that too. You know, same yeah, thing it's with like, – um, oh, yeah washing the feet of your guest. I mean, people were walking barefoot through streets covered in cow dung. So some, some things make Mm -hmm. sense. And, you know, I think, I think Hinduism is actually quite beautiful in many ways where it's not corrupt. But my point is, you know, when it comes to the rituals of the Hare Krishnas, there's, there's a ritual for everything for every time of day. There's, there's a rule for your every last thought. And, um, you know, you're supposed to fast on the 11th day after the new moon and the 11th day after the full moon and once a year you're supposed to fast even from water and you know and it's like the more time you spend in something like that the more you feel like you need direction and guidance for every little move that. every every breath right and and so if you look at any group that's really cultish it's just full of all these things and you know some of them don't make sense it's like you know that people shouldn't wear a certain color of clothing um and I mean you can probably come up with some examples I haven't heard of, of of just ridiculous rules and it's like what's the point of all this these rules? well maybe to make you kind of paranoid and mistrust your own judgment and and you know to instill magical thinking and I think it kind of disconnects you from your senses because it's like Okay. Well, if there's a God who's offended by, I'm just gonna make this up because this isn't any religion I know of. If there's a God who's offended by me wearing green in the month of January, then you know, but but mm-hmm. I don't see anything wrong intuitively with wearing green in the month of January. It makes no logical sense or intuitive sense. But if it's offensive to God, well then that's just another brick in the wall of disconnection between my instincts and how I conduct my life. So I wonder, I mean, do you think that this kind of um, cultivation of not necessarily clinical OCD, but an obsessive and compulsive mentality through religiosity, that it kind of keeps people's, well, it disconnects you from your own judgment, right? And then it keeps your Mm -hmm. scrutiny directed on to things that are, most of us who aren't in cults would say really inconsequential. And Mm -hmm. Do you think that the process of obsessing over the morality of, again, to use a made-up example, how you shouldn't wear green in the month of January, that 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 kind of serves a function of protecting the things that are truly evil, keeping people from scrutinizing them and redirecting the impulse to use proper discernment?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's and that's where uh, I mean, it's easy to go after the Catholic Church, but. Um, because it, it is, it's is—it's so apparent. But just the most recent example was the Southern Baptist Convention and where it came out that they've known for decades about rampant uh, sexual abuse you know, amongst their ranks and actively seeking to not, to, to shutter this, to dampen it down, make sure nobody talks about it for the, expli- like, they weren't. They didn't hide about this. Like they were. Ex- there are statements, explicit statements, going. Our calling is for something more than this. <laughs> that that our the truth outweighs essentially any harm that may be done by adherence, and that basically one soul is for saving it. I mean, what is? What is a a um, uh, a momentary you know uh, uh, you know problem in the face of eternity is effectively what it all boils down to, and when you put yourself when you have made yourself a the embodiment of belonging to a movement a, uh, an ideology a structure that is about things that are eternal. Or um, difficult to grasp. I mean, if you notice that we're we're looking at thoughts and emotions and things that are readily accessible, and so um, when you, when you're talking about that, it's easy to remove oneself from the uh, you know the grossness of biology of, of the interpersonal. Like that's less important. You know, th- this is an issue small tangent. I mean, this is an issue, you know, from the beginning of Christianity around dealing with Arianism and whether or not Jesus was fully human. And there was a big old debate. Lots of people died um, around, you know, whether or not he was fully human and fully God. And it was this whole idea behind, well, no, he was a purely spiritual being because, you know, as you get closer to physiology, the more sin exists. And you're like, wait a minute. And they, I mean, there are systems in place of like, Various levels of, you know, the study of biology was the most sinful and, you know, contemplation of spirituality from a philosophical perspective was the least. And it was like math was somewhere in between. I mean, it was just craziness of trying to put, you know, academic, thoughtful disciplines on some kind of hierarchy of wrongness. And you see that now where... Well, we expect the physical to be awful. So when we see it show up,
1: mm,
0: well, just put thine eyes towards the future because all will be made right eventually. Um, you know, if you question what you might be doing when, say, judging a person, uh, you know, based on. You know, skin color or particular you know uh, sex characteristics. Like, oh well, you know, uh, you know, this is where this problem. But in the long term, this is all going to work out because we'll have figured out how to um, you know make everything equitable. You know, kind of thing. And it's this constant putting out there into the future mm. a world that we just it's almost there. Mm. We just have to keep pushing. It's almost there. Just keep pushing. And it does. It allows you to get away with not looking at a lot of truly awful things. You just some drew level. some connections
2: that I, I want to reflect. Mm-hmm. So as you were talking, I was kind of associating with how religions teach people to distrust their bodies, right? So we know that control mm-hmm. of sexuality is one of those right to make people afraid of something as natural as having a sexual desire? Um, you know, similarly, uh, control of appetites. You know, when I when I think about the high Krishna's and the um, the emphasis on kind of controlling your tongue. You know, being vegetarian, only eating food that's been blessed by God according to your rituals, um, and sex and food are these basic drives that are rooted in biology and that are closely linked with other physical drives, like being aware of how your body feels and what it needs and emotions are rooted in the body too, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. if you can teach people to dissociate uh, uh, from things like uh, sexuality, hunger, and other sensations, then you can also teach them to dissociate from their emotions. And you can take people out of the present moment and kind of sell them on the future instead, right So you link, make this link with child abuse that in the most egregious acts of violence are justified by saying, well, that's really no big deal compared to the afterlife, which is what we're here for. And then you just mm-hmm. drew this connection with the uh, political ideology that's so common right now with which we co- could call woke ideology that um <clears throat> again, it's this distrust your senses, right? So in religion, uh, people are being told, ignore this thing that seems important because it's really not important. And what's important is what's on the other side, this heaven that we're trying mm-hmm. to get to, right? And in the process, you can distrust this and that and ignore this and that. Well, similarly, in Kind of modern quote unquote anti racism, which I don't think is actually anti racist. It's not what it calls itself. Um, no. There's this ignore your perception that there's racism happening here, ignore your perception that it's wrong to discriminate against people for let's say, being white or being male or not feeling the need to try to change their sex or for having money or, you know, any of these um, quote-unquote privileged categories that someone might belong to, there's this message, ignore your perception that what we're doing right now toward people we label as privileged is actually hateful, which it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's—and it's, it's oftentimes quite cruel and punishing, the attitudes held mm-hmm. toward people of perceived privileged status. But it's, hey, don't don't look at the man behind the screen, right? Don't, don't pay attention to what, what, according to your natural physical and moral instincts, feels distasteful about this. That sense that this is not loving, this is not safe, this is not right. Because it'll all be worth it. The sacrifice mm-hmm. of tolerating this abuse based on demographics will all be worth it for the promised land of, mm-hmm. you know, the ideal future of living in a perfectly anti-racist world.
0: Yep. Well, it's, it's that. It's the. it's well, Anytime you. I mean, this subtle shift from equality to equity. Which you know, I always, you know, tend to put you know, tend, you know, the defining the difference is equality plus authority equals equity. Because mm. you need authority to make things equal in that sense. Mm. If you're gonna make outcomes the same, then you have to have an authoritative structure to make it happen. Because Natural reality is not equal outcomes. It it, that is bizarre. Like it Mm -hmm. it makes there is zero sense in -hmm. that in a in a natural world. I mean, even if if even if we were to make, I'm totally stealing from, from Sam Harris and others. But even if we were to make a perfect equitable system where there was not a shred of even potential. Bias and so on. So let's delve right into fantasy land. All that's gone. We are still going to have variations in outcomes depending on how you crunch the numbers because of interests, because of genetic proclivities, because of family dynamics, because of circumstance. I I mean, heaven forbid free will. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love going back to pet rocks. Really, pet rocks. What? They were rocks. Pet rocks. Oh, this is back. Yeah, back in the eighties, you could literally get a, 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 a nice little thing. It was it was a rock in a, in a in a little baggie, and it was your pet. Okay. And I don't know how much money it made, but the fact that it even was marketed at all, I mean, it's just like this is we're making this stuff up. And we're living in this, you know, it, it, that's not equitable. It's just like variations and circumstance. You'd never be able to get that now. You wouldn't be able to pass that off. Instead, we have, you know, other you know, things that are equally ridiculous. But I mean, you know, it's the, um, you know, people tell you, it's easy to look at entertainment this way, in the way that circumstances, that really are not anybody's particular controlled thing. It's just life. And some things come up, and that's a great idea, but it didn't work out real well. And then suddenly 10 years later, the fad shifted, and now everything's great. I mean, I love superhero movies. I grew up remember you know, watching uh, some of the initial Spider Man movies that I don't even know if you could find, <laughs> but they were cheesy, it was awesome, and but they were like in the late seventies, early eighties, and they flopped. Like it didn't go anywhere. And people were like, Oh well, you know, now you can't, you know, throw a movie ticket without hitting a, a superhero movie. I mean it's just like in in somebody to, to look at that and go, no, wait, no, we, we needed everything to be, you know, demarcated by 20% superhero movies, 20% rom-coms and so on, like in order to have these equal outcomes, is just absurd any more than it is. Well, as long as we have this percentage of people who happen to have a certain level of melanin are going to be, you know, like it's almost as if you're not who you are, but what you are determines how you think, how you should think, and what you should be interested in. Mm. And it's like, no, let's that, talk about debilitating. And again, we come back to that authoritative structure. In What's the authority is about removing will. It is about removing self-efficacy from the person. It's about supplanting how we see ourselves as effective creatures for and to replace it with some, you know, authority, you know, authority structure of some, some kind. Could be a person, could be, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. But that's fundamentally what, what, what it's about. And we are smack dab in the middle of it to varying degrees.
2: As a therapist, I've gotten up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organify makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic, and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. That reliance on an authority figure, you connect it with a distrust of nature, a distrust of free will. That things could happen at random. Stochastically or because of yeah. the butterfly effect that, that circumstances can unfold, people's interests can develop in different ways, and it's there's going to be an unequal distribution of various things. And, and that that could be okay is, is like sacrilegious to this mm-hmm. authoritarian worldview that you talk about. In order to enforce their version of equality, you have to cut off your senses. You have to Mm -hmm. distrust nature and embodiment and and free will and all of that. And again, there's this kind of directing scrutiny where it's not needed. Directing Mm -hmm. scrutiny to small things that are made into problems because you're Fitting because you're looking at the world through a certain lens, a lens that we could describe as religious, even if it's not, even if it doesn't see itself as religious. That through this lens, you're looking for inequality everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And then that becomes your mission and your purpose. That becomes your prayer. That becomes your worship. That becomes how you purify yourself through your attempts to purify the world by seeking out and eradicating your version of evil, which is some kind of injustice. And then mm-hmm. everything gets filtered through that lens. And the only explanation for anything that you view as less than flawless in the world is some kind of inequality or injustice that is basically evil. And then and then you must direct your scrutiny toward eradicating that. Rather than preserving that instinct for things that really need it, an example of where I've seen this carried to an extreme that comes to mind is um I had a classmate in graduate school who was like the wokest member of our school at the time and uh, and now, from what I hear, the graduate programs are kind of all like the way that she thought and the, the way that she wanted all of us to think um. And I remember seeing her post on Facebook once that she was outraged that Facebook's reaction emojis had blue eyes, which I had to look real closely. I I could not see blue eyes. I mean they looked black to me. Yeah. But it was it was white supremacist apparently. Right, of course. That that you know, because only white people have blue eyes. Now it doesn't matter that emojis are yellow and round with no hair. Sometimes mm. and no ears and no noses and no bodies <laughs> yes. and that they look nothing like freaking human beings, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the fact that some of them had eyes that were a dark blue color that to me looked black was evidence of racism and uh, therefore reason for her to be outraged and to go on a purification mission, which was to spread the news about this. Outrageous um, injustice, right? <laughs> it's like the human mind is so brilliantly capable of doing so many things, and mm. the the what it takes for a mind to come up with that. I just think that brain power could be devoted to much, much greater purposes. But it makes Mm -hmm. sense as a natural extension of a worldview where your lens is injustice and your moral duty is seeking out and calling attention to injustice, even though that's not how psychology works. That's not how people work. It's not how life works. And if you're determined to see it that way, you're going to see it that way. You're going to find evidence for it. There's basic cognitive behavioral therapy, right? You're also welcome Mm -hmm. to look at it a different way. And if you look at it a different way, you will find evidence for that too. And- one of those is going to be more conducive than the other to, you know, good mental health and sound relationships. But, um, <laughs> now, Remotes. now we've gotten into a uh, political ideology. I didn't know if we were going to yeah. go there, but I guess we went there.
0: It, I mean, it's difficult to, to, to really separate the two. I mean, it, it's it, <laughs> the, the blue eyed emojis reminds me of, of, um, you know uh watching out don't use lol because it really means lucifer our lord (laughs) yeah now (laughs) yeah there there there, there's a point where you really have to start questioning like is this the low-hanging fruit kind of like yes, this is clearly a derivation of that worldview. And, and we're going to actively seek out the most ridiculous things and, and laud them because if we address them, all of a sudden I'm doing my duty. Um, at this, and, But at the same time, you know, it's like, this is really small. I mean, it's one of those where <laughs> I try not to speak to too many of examples like that because it's like, Eh, how many people? It's kind of like, it's almost like the the Tide Pod challenge of of finding errors in people's ideology. Like you can always find one moron who did something egregiously stupid, and find and and it only really reached uh, uh, public consciousness because of this wonderful, delightful thing we call the internet, and and it's one of those. Um, It's it's a peculiar, it's a fun thing to kind of walk through because then you run into the risk of social contagion and, yeah,
1: anyway,
0: uh, going a little bit, (laughs) going on a bit of a tangent. Um, But it is, you know, you start looking at these structures of how we organize our experiences and combine that with the idea that we really don't like being wrong. And I love, uh, Catherine Schultz uh, has a book um, called uh, uh, Being Wrong, Adventures on the Margin of Error. This is like one of the top three books that I end up recommending to almost every client out there. Because it's such a wonderful exploration of the, the, the reality is the, the baseline experience of what we have is actually being wrong it's not being right it's just that the feeling that we have is associated with well what does feeling wrong feel like actually kind of like it feels like to be right because i'm right about the fact that i saw this wrongness and so it this this you know this purification thing is piggybacking i think off of that process where we don't like being wrong, because at a, at, that le- at a certain level, the way we view the world is how we are going to survive, which means anytime we're wrong, it means we got the world wrong, which means our degree of potential survival just got diminished. Well, a little wonder then that we don't really like being wrong. So in order to assuage ourselves, we focus on being right and the, and the positive feeling associated with it. And so... What ends up being a great way to piggyback and hijack that? Well, find all of the wrongness that you can, especially the inconsequential ones, and ride that feeling wave right on forward into feeling that the world is exactly the way you like. Like, okay. I mean, <laughs> we do it, you know, varying degrees. But man, once you put it at social policy, it's, highly destructive.
2: It's a waste of human potential, isn't it?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I feel like we've gone on some really interesting tangents here. A while ago, though, I'd asked you to define some of the primary characteristics of religious trauma and abuse. Um, So you talked about authoritarianism, um, ethical privacy. What are some other key points?
0: the other one, in, kind of a trifecta, but it, it is. but um, I could add more. But but the third one is a is a definitional issue around what it means to to uh, make decisions within your own body, to um, to form an identity and various identities. You know, it's like. We'll refer to it like, you know, I have to put on my work hat because I'm going to work. I have to put on my family hat because I'm here. I have to, you know, whatever. We, we put on these different uh, personas or whatever word you want to use. And we use, we do that rather effortlessly. You yeah. know, it's like we don't, because we don't even think about it. And what the, stemming from the authority that then bridges into that the violation of ethical privacy then violates the sense of being a uh, shifting, multifaceted being in changing circumstances. And what it replaces it with is a singularity. You know, it says, you, you must maintain this level of authenticity. And it almost weaponizes it. And we see this in most people like you don't need the rest of it to, to be there we see it all the time when people are like i don't know if i'm really being the real me you know i'm struggling with is this who i am you know that was that wasn't me like that that was that was something else i don't know what came over me you know kind of thing and the reality is is that it's all you <laughs> there's just not a, there's no singular you that you know goes that that is permanent and so we're constantly in this interactive role with everything we're around and what this what the uh, religious structure whether it's religious or socio-political says is that no there is only one version and you have to be it all the time and any aberration from it is mm-hmm. grounds for condemnation and judgment and shame mm. and malignant self-doubt. Mm. And so, you know, it's, um, you, know, uh, you know, the principle of do not forsake the assembly. You know, it's why you go to church on Sundays and then go to church on Wednesdays and why you go to the Bible study on Thursdays and then you, or the Hare Krishna's. Why, like that's an egregious example, but really it's just a, on a spectrum of making sure that who you are is viewed only through a very narrow lens and you never step outside of it because who you are is only this period and you see that in then religious circles you see it in socio political circles where if you happen to question say uh you know gun control policy that isn't going to do actually any good well you call yourself a liberal or mm-hmm. you know these days if you were to dare to question the fact that you know maybe Donald Trump is a malignant awful person and shouldn't be you know running and, and you call yourself a you know conservative mm-hmm. you know it's like mm-hmm. wait a minute what mm-hmm. you know it's this almost weaponization of the new, no true scotsman <laughs> let's see you know it's like any any outward any outward change you have now stepped outside of it and you know, same thing with uh, you know, uh, you, know a, a, you pick a gender, and anytime you step outside of this variation in what's socially prescribed behaviors, oh well, now you you stepped outside of it. Well, that must mean that something else is going on here. And you're like, wait a minute, whatever happened mm-hmm. to you know, human variation? Whatever mm-hmm. happened to uh, contemplating? Uh, how we you know may show up you know we're mm-hmm. we're not jigsaw puzzles we are i don't know lava lamps <laughs> i mean it's, i don't know where i was going with that m- metaphor but i mean it's just like we're constantly shifting around like let's have some fun here instead mm-hmm. of trying to you know put us into a box that mm-hmm. you know you can't step outside of for fear of you know, judgment
2: it's really interesting way you put it and I don't know that I'd ever thought of it in those terms before but it makes a lot of sense. You started with describing how we function when we're healthy and well adjusted. This comfort in ourselves that allows us to what I'll call code switch, right? To kind of mm-hmm. effortlessly shift gears back and forth between who you are when you're with your family, who you are at work and you know, what each of your various roles entails and ability to feel natural in each of those roles, but also compartmentalized to the right degree. So at work, you can feel like you're being yourself, but you're not going to tell them your intimate details of your home life. And at home, you can feel like you're being yourself, but you're not going to bring every part of you from your workday because you don't feel like bringing it home. So the mm-hmm. ability to compartmentalize and code switch, but also have a cohesive sense of self and to be able to relax and get comfortable in each of those roles. I like how you define how that works in a healthy person because then I can have context and I'm like, oh yeah, I do that. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty well adjusted at this point in my life, you know, and then I compare that because <laughs> yep. I, I remember what it felt like when when I was in a cult and every moment of every day had to be morally pure, had to follow the rules. And I remember when I, when I tried to operate outside of it, um, that sort of uh, just a lot of free-floating anxiety about like, how do I show up in this role? I don't know how to do this role. Even if I was technically capable of whatever the duties of that role might've been, you know, having, uh, well, I was in college at the time. So, you know, having college jobs, taking college classes, um, I was able to do the responsibilities, but there was this real, like, how do I do this? Who am I when I'm in this role? How does this connect at all to what I thought my life was about? Yeah. And, and then I think about how you, you started to kind of draw a connection there with um, the gender stuff. One thing I've noticed from working with families who are concerned about their youth who are involved in gender ideology is that everything, everything the youth does has to become about gender. Everything, right? And um, I've worked with a family that's told me everything my kid does, everything they're interested in, I Google that phrase plus gender. And sure enough, that thing Mm -hmm. has become gendered. You know, part part of the work of trying to help a kid who's involved in gender stuff is just to take the pressure off of gender because no matter what sex or gender you are, no matter what religious beliefs or worldview you have, uh, you are more than a gender. You're still a person, right? And yep. even for people who socially and medically transition and are happy that way and are sure they made a, the right choice, and for whom that lasts a long time they are under just as much obligation as all of the rest of us to cultivate a sense of self and a whole human life and personality and way of moving through the world. And if you make everything about this idea of gender, then you're really missing out on so much of what makes a human life and and what's required to move through this life. Um, So yeah, there's more to you than your gender and you can argue with your family over pronouns and whatnot, but at the end of the day, this is still your family. And there are lots of things that you can do as a person who has a life and interests. But what happens when kids are wrapped up in the gender ideology is that there's nothing that it doesn't touch. And gender Mm -hmm. becomes this this obsessive thing that they cling to that they don't feel... I mean, it really comes across from the outside like they don't feel safe going anywhere without their gender blankie. Yeah. It's like they don't know who they are without it, and it has to be the focus of everything, and they don't get to have different selves,
0: like you say. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's... they just why you're speaking. Shall I my in mind about this... Um, breaking down of the boundaries between uh, socially prescribed identities that really kept us sane. I mean we, we can't <laughs> we simply cannot express every aspect of who we are, what we are, in every moment of the day. It's not possible. So if you, And the allowance for that is to recognize that, yeah, we have different roles. We have different uh, facets. You know, one of my favorite metaphors for this is the kaleidoscope, especially the old school. Like, you just turn this thing, and there is a certain, you know, what's brilliant about this is that there's, you don't add sand to it, you don't subtract it. There's a prescribed set of sand particles. But the variability of those is virtually, for all intents and purposes, infinite. In in the varied of, you know, lived experience, it's it's infinite. It might as well be. But what you have is what you have. And in fact, the more you turn, the more you seek out new experiences, the more you find new ways of expressing yourself, the more you're recognizing just how much more there is to you to be. And this idea that you you know a singular behavior defines the whole of you. The only way to do that is to feed into the you know authority, to bleed out the the boundaries. And it's like these um uh, ERGs that are that have blown up over the last decade in in corporate um, called, uh, employee yeah they're called um, Uh, employee, not led groups, but um, uh, basically employee interest groups where you'll have these, you're usually led by employees. Uh, They might have some kind of managerial presence to give them legitimacy depending on how they're being implemented by the company. And it's all by, like, you'll have a, a multicultural ERG. You'll have a uh you know a uh, board game erG you know, like you'll you'll have all these things that are about helping people ex- you know like find ways of expressing their personal private lives mm. in the work environment
2: yeah and and a lot of so so many people don't want that
0: no no it's like I, mean, I just want to I mean, work I, my
2: eight hours and then go home and play the games I like to play at home with my family
0: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This, this breaking down of the boundaries is not helpful because we can't do it. Like we literally cannot do it. It is, it's not even that if we just try hard enough, no, (laughs) it's literally impossible to have everything of who we are show up because we can only act in one way at any given moment. We can't do, like, we're not, this isn't a individualized version of multiplicity. You know, thank you, Lee, Michael Keaton, what, um, delightfully corny movie. But, you know, it's like you, we can't split ourselves and do multiple things at any given moment. We mm-hmm. have to do one. Well, and. and the stress.
2: It's an inappropriate it boundary. All. It is. Yeah, I mean, we need, we need boundaries. We need compartments for things, you know, for, for things to have a time and place. I recently moved from a house where many areas of my life were taking place in one big room for Mm -hmm. years. I mean, mostly during the pandemic, that's when it was simultaneously my therapy office, my admin office, my place where I exercised and stretched and hang out and ate and played music and... Um. And I found it very difficult to concentrate in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. Especially on any, you know, concentrate on a conversation. Sure, when I'm sitting and talking to a person, I'm engrossed in that. But, you know, to sit down at my desk and focus on a project when I had so many other things. And now I'm in a different home environment where this office is just my office. And I am concentrating so much better in here because when I come in here, this is the place where it's just my work. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate that boundary. A lot of people come to work as a respite from home or a welcome change of pace from home, a place where they can concentrate on their work better than they could at home. Um, And sometimes people have things going on in their personal lives that they would rather forget about at work. Or they have things that are enriching and meaningful and wonderful to them about their personal lives, but that are too dear to their heart to want to share with some random employee who they might not want to be close friends with. It's, it's perfectly okay to have respectful, polite, collegial relationships and not have to be close with everyone or to like everyone. And those, those boundaries of professionalism make it safe for that. You know, the fact that there is kind of a basic code of conduct of how we all treat each other with respect and cooperation without having to agree on everything. That's what keeps things civil Whereas when you're expected to have these friendly relationships and let your guard down and, and share these other parts of you, well, then you get into all the elements of human relationships where it's like, yeah, these might not be the people I want to share that with. And now I have a problem no. at work because I don't feel like being best friends with Mike in HR. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Boundaries, code switching, compartmentalization, yep. psychological flexibility, living a well-rounded life. I didn't know we were going to get into any of this stuff. See, I never, even today, you know, some conversations I go into a little bit more like, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. I was like, today, whoa, okay, religious abuse. There's the thing we're going to talk about, but here we ended up. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show.
0: When it reminds me there's um, Fukuyama, uh, who's more well-known for the end of history. Um, he's he's commonly misunderstood but he wrote a book called identity that actually i think is well worth reading by but particularly people who are in social sciences but he said you know he noted that one of the fundamental shifts that happened in the last decade or two is that we used to consider identity as a um as being derived from broader experience and it was kind of like a a way of working within different contexts. But now it's been reversed, where identity gets to define what the context is. We've we've taken on this, dare I say, godlike power (laughs) to say that what my thoughts are gets to define what reality is. And if they, if it isn't, well, then now I get to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. do something about it. And right. yeah. So that would be okay.
2: like, to give an example would be like, if you and I started off this conversation with me going, I am a white quote unquote, cisgendered heterosexual uh, woman who is a partner and a step parent living in Portland, Oregon, from a working class background, now middle class. I am sitting here talking with a white <laughs> fill in the blank, fill in the blank, um, mm-hmm. atheist, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. And these uh these identities, like as as if that's the most important way to introduce. Yeah. Right. And then if I carried that, I mean, if I were looking through that lens, then I could think about I mean it's such a cynical lens. You didn't interrupt me because it's it's hard for me to come at it with an example. I was going to say if if I were looking through that lens and I could think about every time you interrupted me which you didn't even and view it in terms of power there he goes being a man yeah. interrupting me mm-hmm. or man interrupting or mansplaining yeah. or you know or of course you would say that he's white. I mean <laughs> that's it's yeah. such a cynical oh, yeah. world and it's so reductionistic yeah. and it just makes me so sad that people are hinging their sense of how 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 they work and how other people work based on this stuff because it's so shallow and empty. And mm-hmm. identity does develop through time and experience and relationships in different roles. And people aren't having those experiences because they're too busy labeling and shaming and blaming. You know, mm-hmm. Adolescence is a time that we start to experiment with identity uh, and and we do so on very fragile grounds because we don't have The experience. So we cling to. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was that age, you know what bands you're into, and you know your band T-shirts and what patches and pins you have on your backpack, and you know Mm -hmm. where you where you shop for clothes and things like that. Um, You know, in different youth subcultures, it could be the emphasis on shoes or sports or whatever. Um, but it's like you know, tribalism 101, right? Like mm-hmm. okay, what are what are the signifiers of my tribe that I want that I think I want to affiliate with? And maybe it changes from year to year or even month to month. Um, and it's all shaky and kind of dramatic because kids are just exploring it for the first time. It's not really founded on anything. And it takes years of experience and trial and error to discover who you really are in any kind of stable or cohesive way. And of course that's anxiety provoking. And I think right now we live in a time when there's this kind of false bill of goods being sold that you can somehow opt out of that process just by mm-hmm. choosing an identity online. Well, there are certain identities are going to be assigned to you, right? And, yes. and you can't get out of that. <laughs> sure. um, but no. But there are certain ones you can choose. And so at least choose that. And, and that this will somehow solve the problem of developing an identity. And then you could just tell people, I'm a this, I'm a that, respect me. And now this determines the context of our conversation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, yep. anything identity you say to me, reality. anything you do that makes me uncomfortable or that triggers my insecurities must be because you're discriminating against me for being a blank. And I mean, what a great get out of jail free card that is, except it's tragic oh, yeah. because facing rejection the natural way without these walls that you can put up kind of forces you to see who your people really are and aren't and what parts of you need some refinement to be mm-hmm. more likable. Um, And so you have people who are just bypassing the whole identity pr- process, the whole identity development process clinging to these labels. And then that's kind of the, the determiner of how, how you're going to like and respect me and what it means if you don't. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we got into identity politics. I didn't know we were going to, <laughs> <laughs> but I it's mean, really, as therapists we're concerned with how people develop personalities and, and yeah. this is really, really bad for character formation.
0: Absolutely. Well, in, in any time that we are perpetuating the notion that, a thought or even a set of thoughts or a set of emotional labels um, defines any single experience, certainly any totality of a person, we should be checking ourselves really hard. Uh, That is the exact opposite of the life that we need to be promoting uh, just as individuals, let alone as professional therapists. I mean, the, the last thing I want is for, I mean, this gets us into, you know, a, a common question that I get is, so, um, I know that what happened to me as a child is, is what had, you know, it's why I'm doing this now, or there's this, this singular line of connecting that happens. And it's like, so what are we going to talk about my childhood like, maybe not ever. I mean, it might come up. It's not going to avoid it, but you're an adult, <laughs> um, so you have the capacity to think through these things at different levels. In fact, the I would be a poor steward of this journey we're on by reinforcing the notion that a, a single event, and it's never just a single event, defined how you're now acting now. You know, we can talk about influences, certainly, but to reinforce this notion that this, this single thing must therefore be tied in unequivocally to this other single thing, where do we go with that? I mean, that, that's, that's now we're just talking about a connect-the-dots program, and without recognizing that those dots are moving all the time, and because biology doesn't work that way. Um, You know, our bodies, or minds don't work that way. And so we're constantly, there's so much more to us than that. And if we're going to try to try to play the connect the gods game, it's a little wonder that we keep getting further and further triggered because it's inherently destabilizing. Mm. Mm
1: -hmm. It is
0: divorcing us from how we actually live in the world. And that is just, it's in which of course I recognize that at some level it's almost why uh, it ends up happening because then, oh, you feel anxious about this or oh, you're uncertain? Well, come back, come to our group, come to our, you know, uh, say gender affirming party and or some level of affirmation in order because you need to keep getting that affirm, you know, affirm, affirmation fix in order to deal with the perpetual uncertainty that you're dealing with. And never questioning the fact that it's actually the very practices you're engaged with that are that are, that are doing it. Mm-hmm. Again, full circle, right back mm-hmm. to, oh, mm-hmm. you questioned or had a thought about your next door neighbor or had a bad thought. Oh, well, that's the sin. Now you have to come to church in order to make sure. I mean, it's just this, you never get outside of, and it's just this. Snake eating its tail thing. Mm. And the greatest freedom is to just get the hell off of the mm-hmm. go around in order to mix a whole bunch of metaphors there. But
2: yeah. You talked about the, uh and you meant this in a cheeky way, but an affirmation party, right? And it just yeah. kind of takes me back to the gender everything, gender baby IKEA shark, right? The, the, y- you know that your worldview is fragile when you need to constantly reinforce it. Um, you know, going back to the Hare Krishnas, it's like, you're supposed to be chanting all the time. Like, that's, if if you're not, if you're not doing anything else, like, what should you be doing when you're not doing anything else? Chanting. What should you be doing when when you're, you know, preparing the food, washing the dishes, driving the car? Chanting. Like, th- that y- you have to constantly remind yourself of this, this kind of key element of your worldview. And, mm. It's the same thing with, I, I would imagine, the most extreme religions and cults that you've helped people out of is that they have to kind of constantly remind themselves. And I remember where it got to a point where, and, and this is very typical for cults, right, where things ratchet up. There's this kind of initial honeymoon phase of love bombing, of you're special and now mm-hmm. you're one of us and we're going to show you all the best aspects of who we are as a culture and why you should love this. And, and then the authoritarianism just kind of ratchets up the deeper you go, right? And, you know, they'll use guilt and intimidation tactics just like in abusive relationships where you're like, that seemed like an innocent enough activity. It seemed like a good one, in fact, but I'm being treated with such anger and mm-hmm. hostility. I must have done something wrong. And it's all part of mind mm-hmm. control to the point where you're, you know, only supposed to be reinforcing the things that fit the ideology And I think that, you know, to bring it back to the gender thing, this is part of how we can see that it does operate like a cult for many people is that if you're a member of this cult, even though there's no single charismatic leader, um, the internet takes the place of a lot of that, that Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're not allowed to not be thinking about it all the time. And you have to be constantly reaffirming, re-exposing yourself to the messages. And you need everyone to agree with you. And um, you should try to live with other people who share your views, only associate with other people who share your views, and affirm your identity, and the rest of the world is, quote-unquote, not safe. There's this kind of paranoia, which yeah. also resembles cults, right? Because in cults, it's like, the oh, outside yeah. world is sinful. Those are all the people who mm-hmm. are going to hell. you got to yep. only associate with the pure ones.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Satan rules the principalities of the air, which is all the governments, and it's like, okay, but uh, it's really <laughs> and there is that there's that um, self-proclaimed uh, martyrdom, desire. you know it's like any time that you get then um, uh, chastised or, Anytime you're triggered in whatever way, it's a, a, a recursive like reinforcement of, oh, I must be on the right path. It's like, oh, yeah, no, okay. Yeah, this, this, this is what I must mm-hmm. be doing. Mm-hmm. And anytime, and so hence why you need to keep looking for more in things. Because, albeit, you know, any number of things we can still most definitely work on in the world any more than any number of individuals of us. Like we can always work on various aspects of who we are and become better versions of who we desire to be like that. It's a lifelong process. Same thing in societies and civilizations. Like we are constantly in a, in, in a state of evolution, generally speaking, doing pretty well in comparison to, you know, where we've come from. And yet, you know, you know, in And because of that, it's not easy all the time to find examples of how awful and sick and twisted the world supposedly is so now you have to go make stuff up and you have to find you know make <laughs> things out of nothing right because oh right I mean yeah. if evil
2: is to be found in emojis then you're living in a pretty good world right <laughs> yeah I want to like, live in that world And yeah. <laughs> so I of course, have been called a Um, right-wing neo-Nazi. And I'm thinking, like, if, if, if that, if that were true, if, if the worst thing that a person could be were a right-wing neo-Nazi, and I represented right-wing neo-Nazis, then, like, the world is full of people who are like better human beings than me, and like that, I'd yeah. I'd love to live in a world full of people who are better human beings than me. I mean, that means we've reached mm-hmm. the promised land. If I'm as bad, if I am as as bad yeah. as it gets, <laughs> like great, mm-hmm. then I, yeah. you know, I can die happily.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> how far we've I, come. You know, Where Nazi used to be globe trotting, Panzer using. You know, are you know uh, uh, military monoliths to now polo wearing tiki, tiki torch waving morons? I'm like, you know, sure, call them whatever you want, but I, I kind of, I'm, I'm happy we live in a world where those are the Nazis.
2: Yeah, that's the best <laughs> you can do that, finding evil in the world. That's
0: the best. You, yeah, like wow, really, we've really succeeded uh, in great. rooting
2: out 99.9 percent of evil. If this is what's left. <laughs> This is what's left. You know, this has been a serious conversation, but I'm glad we're ending on a light note. And I really am getting getting this message of hope, right? And it's a message that's been throughout what you've been sharing today. It's it's a message of that that it's okay to trust your instincts. That Mm -hmm. religious abuse will make a person deeply paranoid and cynical. And The process of overcoming religious abuse is a process of love conquering over fear of realizing that Mm -hmm. you know there's good news you were neurotically obsessed over things that it turns out are no danger to you aren't evil don't need to be eradicated don't need your anxiety whatsoever you can forget about them and that you can trust your instincts in most situations and you can learn to regain trust in your instincts um and uh, you can save your judgment and your vigilance for, you know, situations that really do require that kind of response. But good news, the world is mostly a pretty safe and peaceful place. And the world outside of your own little bubble is not full of piranhas. Um, the floor is not lava. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you're going to be okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, by, by and large, the floor uh, is not lava.
2: I uh, might make that the title of this. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't actually, think that, people will get that it. That would be awesome. But, yeah. But uh, I'm just writing that down just in case. Okay. Um, well, David, it's been a pleasure. So tell people where they can find you.
0: Yeah, I, um, I have a uh, lifeweavings.com uh, Life is weavings. my primary uh, site. Um, it's where you can also find my uh, photography uh, work as well. It's one of the primary ways um, I express creativity and, and with clients. Um, and then as well, uh, humanitiesvalues.com is primarily where my podcast uh, is found. A lot of resources. Um, it can also be listened to on everywhere. <laughs> so, um, and then I'm also on uh, Twitter at Life Weavings. And I also have a Facebook uh, business page as well that's pretty easy to find there so yeah i'm everywhere and just trying to have as much fun as possible with amidst the seriousness of figuring out this life so yeah
2: it's been a pleasure having you thank you so much thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast with stephanie Wynn lmft this podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician, Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At sometherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Some If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at some You can also send us a voice memo with your question and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.